You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM's The Morning Buzz, and we are speaking to Margareta Dovgal, Managing Director at Resource Works Society. And this week's topic is what a soon-to-be-announced federal loan guarantee for Indigenous communities in Canada might entail, plus provincial climate policy, now to balance perspectives from the public and business on carbon pricing and the OBPS. Margareta, thank you so much for joining us this morning. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, let's kick off with our first topic for today. Indigenous communities are increasingly taking a stake in major projects across the country. How is that happening, and what effect is it having? Well, that's right. It's uh, been a real transformation that we have seen over the last couple of years. And uh, over here at ResourceWorks, uh, we've been pretty excited to not just watch and report on what's been going on, but uh, also be an active a participant and convening platform in the conversation will host an annual event, the Indigenous Partnership Success Showcase, which is coming back next June to Vancouver, uh, where we talk about uh, not only Indigenous uh, partnerships and major projects, but everything that's happening at this nexus of industry-Indigenous partnerships across the Canadian economy. Uh, but before I answer your question directly, humor me here, uh, I want us to all hop into a time portal to the year 2015. And this is actually the year that I first got involved in ResourceWorks. Uh, also, summers I uh, did an internship with the BC Liberal Party, as it was then known, and at that time the party was in government provincially. That was eight years ago, and so much has happened since then. Uh, the Trans Mountain Expansion Project was already underway. Um, at that point, it had a private proponent, Kinder Morgan, and 2015 was also smack dab in the middle of some really considerable public discussion, regulatory hubbub, and a series of legal arguments being advanced in court uh, about the merits of a major project to transport oil to Canada's coast for export. Uh, the BC government had given the project five conditions on its end uh, to allow it to proceed, uh, including the fourth one that, uh, quote, legal requirements regarding Aboriginal and treaty rights are addressed and First Nations are provided with the opportunities, information, and resources necessary to participate in and benefit from a project. And you know, it's interesting to see just how far we've come from uh, just that framing language. Um, you know, by that point, Indigenous rights and sovereignty had very much become a focal point for discussions about Canada's energy and economic future. And I would say that has considerably advanced. But going back in the time portal, just a few years prior to that, uh, around 2012, 2013, there had been considerable debate about another project, Northern Gateway by Enbridge. Um, for anyone who remembers uh, this period uh, in the early 2010s, uh, you know, I had friends on Facebook changing their middle names on Facebook to hashtag no Enbridge for some reason. Uh, in fact, I remember asking a few folks uh, what it was all about, and uh, some people answered, some people really had no idea, but felt it was a done thing. Um, and some cited Indigenous opposition to the no, uh, to, to the uh, Northern Gateway project. Um, and that had been uh, proposed to carry oil across northern BC to uh, export terminals on the North Coast. Uh, for a variety of reasons, that project didn't proceed. But in the eyes of the public, many people came to believe that there was something fundamentally incompatible between oil and gas, including pipelines, and Indigenous support. You know, fast forward to early 2020, just before COVID came along and changed everything utterly, we were in the midst of another such narrative uh, project opponents of the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline, uh, which uh, goes across northern BC, uh, including a few Indigenous communities, had deployed a loud and very disruptive campaign aimed at uh, stopping this project. Um, but where we are today, 2023, is markedly different. Uh, that project, Coastal Gas Link, is nearly complete. 
Uh, in fact, it actually made history with an equity option deal uh, with uh, over a dozen and a half First Nations communities along its route, uh, although that has been challenged lately by issues accessing financing, which uh, some uh, federal uh, work to address, uh, I, I think, is, is quite relevant here. Um, another project, um, LNG Canada, uh, which is actually uh, getting the natural gas that's carried by coastal gas link is backed enthusiastically by the Hyslo Nation. Uh, that nation is also advancing another LNG export terminal project, Cedar LNG, uh, that's going to take uh, additional gas from coastal gas link. Um, and then back to Trans Mountain, that's also nearly done. Um, more than one indigenous group actually wants to buy it from the federal government. Um, so we've seen a huge, uh, just complete change in this landscape. Uh, with Fiber LNG, got an environmental certificate issued by the Squamish Nation. Uh, there's another uh, liquefied natural gas export project, Silisms, being planned for the North Coast. And really what this speaks to, not only is, is it that industry practices evolved, but also that indigenous involvement and in leadership of major energy projects has very much arrived. And indigenous LNG is Canadian LNG, and vice versa. Canadian LNG has become indigenous LNG. Um, so these tools that communities use to participate, including equity participation, which is a form of being part owners, or even active project leadership. These are really, really key methods here. And this is true across the economy. And if it's not already apparent to the wider public, it soon will be that our economy can thrive and we can build big things as a country if we work collaboratively in true partnership with Indigenous peoples to get there. So when it comes to enabling increased equity participation, what is the significance of the policy tool being considered by the federal government and what remains to be seen about it? So um, we're hearing that in the next couple of weeks, um, potentially even as early as next week, we will learn what the federal government uh, has in scope for its uh, backstop policy. Um, And let me be clear, it's so, so excellent. Um, You know, this is a policy recommendation that has been advanced for years um, because we, we know from experience that uh, even where there is huge demand and interest by Indigenous communities to involve themselves in major projects, accessing capital, and you know when you're building big things, it's not a small amount, it's billions of dollars of capital often that's needed, or you know many, many millions. Um, that is a challenge. Uh, it continues to be one. Provincial governments uh, like Alberta and Saskatchewan uh, have come up with their own tools uh, to support uh, indigenous nations and consortiums of nations uh, seeking to invest in major projects. Um, and that was a positive step forward. Uh, but many uh, policy proponents and advocates have long been pointing to the ability that the federal government has without spending a single cent to say to lenders, uh, hey, we will guarantee this loan. Please loan to this community. They are uh, pursuing a project that is in their self-interest. They have assessed as a community they want to be a part of. They want to deliver those benefits locally. Um, and if there's an issue with them paying you back, we will backstop that loan. Um, that's essentially a mechanism that has a pretty low risk rate, um, particularly when you know it's being invested in projects that uh, fundamentally have a path to success. Um, and also, uh, it's a very low-cost way for the taxpayers as a whole to support economic reconciliation. Uh, but fundamentally, the question here is how far self-determination should go. It's this principle that Indigenous peoples ought to have the freedom to decide what projects they want to pursue. Um, but there's uh, still some uncertainty about whether this new federal uh, initiative will actually allow for all projects uh, to, to be supported, including oil and gas. Um, and I really think, and Reserve Source really thinks that 
decisions should rest with the nations if this mechanism is being made available. Um, it should be up to the nations to decide what they want to get involved with. Um, so lots of uh, similar uh, types of uh, anecdotes on the provincial side as well. Uh, BC Hydro has uh, put out a call for power or just signal that there will be one early next year. Um, so that's uh, aimed at uh, kind of more independent projects uh, to, to get additional electricity on the BC grid. Um, and they've really made it clear that a condition for projects to succeed is that they be supported by Indigenous communities. I think the same argument really applies to things like nuclear. You know, if there is an Indigenous proponent for this, is this something that the BC government will be okay with? Um, and more importantly, if we are in an era of reconciliation, truthfully and meaningfully, shouldn't we empower nations? to be the decision makers on these kinds of things. On another note, there was polling just last week that a growing proportion of British Columbians are concerned about the impacts on the provincial carbon tax on their household finances. Please unpack that for us. It was a polling uh, that was done and released by Mario Conseco, Research and Co. Uh, that found that uh, 62% of British Columbians say that the provincial carbon tax has negatively affected their household finances. Um, you know, not a big surprise. Um, carbon pricing is ramping up <laughs> across the country, and the reality is that climate action isn't free. Uh, and that's the flip side of the reality that abundant, affordable, accessible energy in the form of fossil fuels, you know, isn't free either, at least in terms of the environmental impact. Um, so transitioning our economies and really our lives as a civilization to lower emitting sources of energy takes a lot of work uh, because the market fundamentals we rely on are based on fossil fuels. Um, that's why making a change uh, to uh, decarbonize isn't so easy. Someone has to pay, and in this case, that someone is everyone, uh, including taxpayers and businesses. So there's a lot of discussion now about uh, where the balance of uh, you know this additional cost needs to be paid, and at the end of the day, what's going to enable for us to have not only a prosperous, uh, an inclusive, and a functional economy, but also a sustainable one. And what has the B.C. government been hearing from the business community on this matter? Well, the B.C. government um, has put together a proposal for an output-based pricing system, OBPS, and um, that's really aimed at putting the focus on industrial emitters. Um, And the reality of this is, you know, it's not just uh, energy production, uh, which, uh, you know, is energy-intensive, but it's every industry. You know, if you are... Uh, in the business of making concrete or steel, that's a lot of emissions. Um, if you're uh, operating a mill and you're drying things, you're using a lot of energy. If you're operating a mine, you know, there are some things you can do uh, connected to the power grid uh, if the connection to your power grid uh, exists in the community where you're developing. Um, but there's a lot of things that still require fossil fuels. So uh, without any exaggeration, the in response to this policy proposal, the business community has been somewhat panicked. Uh, And it's not the idea of pricing carbon or pollution that's the problem here. Um, It's ultimately a concern that for political acceptability reasons, um, the B.C. government would um, pass more of the burden to businesses, um, but then have the cost or overall economic well-being um, effectively deeply internalized in in the incentives we set in our our economic system. Um, And there's fear that this is going to create uh, huge, huge uh, impacts for our investment competitiveness. Uh, we're going to lose uh, potential investments in all kinds of projects, including developing mines that produce critical
critical minerals, uh, which enable the world to transition away from oil and gas. Um, so an off-ramp is needed. And um, I think an easy one is bringing the OBPS in line with competing jurisdictions, including right here in Canada, like Ontario and Quebec. Uh, ultimately, deindustrializing is a way to reduce emissions is just terrible policy. We need industry to maintain our high quality of life. We need to get a balance that enables people to feel that they're keeping track on affordability. Um, but one of the ways you can support affordability is by ensuring that economic growth continues and is strong and robust. And uh, thriving industry is a solutions provider for that. It has been historically, continues to be, and it very much will be in the future if the BC government gets this one right. Margareta, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. You take care. You too.